Welcome to Treasure Valley Podcast. I'm Chuck. Today's episode is different than usual. Our friend John Weissert called in. He is a research associate for Advocate Aurora, which is the fifth largest hospital network in the country. He is currently analyzing data and coming up with projections on what their network is going to need in the face of the upcoming coronavirus and current coronavirus pandemic. Um, It's a good conversation. It is very disconcerting, uh, but we felt like we needed to share it with you all. So hopefully you learn something from it. Welcome. We have John Weissert on the phone with us. Um, Around the table is Elliot and Zoe. Thanks for introducing me. Thank you. No problem. I figured this could be a little bit more official than our other podcasts because it's less humorous. So why do we have John here today? John, do you want to Tell everybody what your qualifications are. Yeah, very limited. Okay. <laughs> no, but I, uh, I'm kind of a, a low man on the totem pole, but I'm a research associate with Advocate Aurora Healthcare. And what's Advocate and Aurora? It's the fifth biggest hospital network in the country. So we have dozens of hospitals, uh, over 50. We serve Chicago and Milwaukee, as well as greater Chicagoland and all of eastern Wisconsin. So we have uh, over 3 million unique patient visits every year. We've got hundreds of um, clinics and over 50,000 staff. And, we- and my, my role there is just as a research associate in the Research Institute uh, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the Wisconsin side of things. And over the last five years or so that I've been working there, I've worked on a data science and predictive analytics team that has focused on um, optimizing treatment strategies for patients with heart conditions, and then also doing risk predictive modeling for cancer patients. And um, in terms of infectious disease, uh, I've kind of been drinking out of a fire hose for the last four weeks because my boss is Iranian. And so he kind of he saw how serious the situation was uh, very early on, about four weeks ago. With coronavirus. With the coronavirus, yeah. And so he, uh, you know, while he was starting to talk to our leadership about what the coordinated response was going to be, we just kind of started working independently um, to see if there were, if we could translate our skills to the um to the field of infectious disease and see if we could come up with anything of value. What, and what have you been learning yeah, so far? Ahead. What kind of what kind of roadblocks have you been running into when it comes to this and unknowns? Oh, well there's I mean there's so many unknowns. It's a new disease. Um like you know, our for just in like the research that we do um or have been doing in the in the past, it's all based on data. So we use retrospective electronic health records and what we call real world evidence. So not clinical trial evidence and see if we can use that real world evidence to optimize treatments um, based on, you know, what's going on actually in the community instead of in a research setting. Um, And when we start looking at a new disease, a new new disease model, the data is so limited and it's mostly really low quality. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the first thing that's a huge roadblock is just 
the quality of the data and making sure that the data that you are trying to use for your models is reasonable. That makes sense. So I know right now there's a lot of panic um, that we've been witnessing, at least uh, locally, as far as surge buying and things. What can you tell us just kind of as like a baseline? um, What what are you examining as far as your research goes and what kind of like models are you projecting for people in the healthcare industry? Uh, Well, um, I guess um, I don't know how down and dirty you guys want to get in terms of the details of these models or if you want to just talk about the results more. Well, we can we can tar- start with the results because I was I was alarmed, especially pretend that you're speaking to just three fifth grade students. Yes. <laughs> OK, it's really f-ing bad. So. Well, no, th- fifth grade students there, John. <laughs> OK, it's really, really bad. So, yeah. Uh you know, hug your grandmothers, hug your parents, and um, it kind of hold on for the ride. So I, I guess, like, if um, if we want to go with, like, what the current gold standard is in predictive modeling, it would be a paper that came out of the Imperial College of London uh, about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, that... Um, used some pretty advanced approaches to, and used past data from influenza um, uh, and like the SERS, sur- surge outbreak, the MERS outbreak, and the H1N1 outbreak. And they used some pretty advanced techniques to model what would happen if there was uh, no social distancing, no public health effects. And they found that in the UK, there'd be uh, I think it's 1.6 million people that die. And in the U.S., 2.2 million people would die. Wow. And uh, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the country uh, would get infected. And it would it would take about um, six months for the disease to spread across both those countries with no public health interventions. Okay. And that's, that's and, just to clear that up, that's with doing absolutely nothing, right? So no school that, yeah, closures, no – okay. Yeah, and that's exactly. still a six month. That's still a six month window. Right. Yeah. So then, in that case, we'd see a peak like around June. Um, and uh, to give you a perspective on how many beds, ICU beds, and how many uh, just regular hospital beds would be required, it's about a hundred times what our current capacity is in the United States. Right. And so, and so that's why we keep hearing this phrase flatten the curve. Am I correct? We want right, to- exactly. So like there's, there's nothing that is going to definitively stop the virus from infecting 20 to 80% of the population with the, you know, kind of the 40 to 60% of your bumpers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can keep the number of infections down low enough that it'll buy us time to make a vaccine. And so what do what does the research show that we should be doing and what's the difference between what's happening here in the United States and other countries? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we have some great examples 
out there of countries that have taken really proactive steps. Um, three countries come to mind in particular, South Korea, Japan, and um, Singapore. And Taiwan as well also took some, some uh, very proactive measures as well. And they were very, very aggressive with identifying people as they entered the country. Singapore, of course, it's pretty easy because there's limited boat travel. They just closed off all the cruise ships from entering in Singapore. And then anybody that's coming off a plane has to go single file. So they just immediately had trained uh, public health officials at all airports allowing people in. They hit you with an infrared um, thermometer on your forehead. And if you had a sign of fever, you were immediately whisked away. Wow. That, that was, and they uh, created special spaces in the airport for isolation. And so those people were, anybody with a fever was immediately whisked away, put in isolation, put in quarantine, and repeatedly tested. Uh, and they were not allowed to leave quarantine for 14 days. This was this happened um, shortly after they realized that the virus was spreading, though. Correct. This was this was when they realized the virus was spreading in Wuhan, before Wuhan got shut down, and before there had been any kind of what they call community spread uh, in Singapore. So, um, with that, like Singapore has been extremely effective. They have their economy is fully open. Um, and they are, um, yeah, they're, they're all the stores, restaurants are open. People are gathering in the streets, um, because that community is currently coronavirus free. Wow. Now, uh, from, uh, other than people that are in isolation. So there's been no community spread beyond the people that are in isolation. So it's pretty much a hundred percent contained. And they're locked down, I'm assuming, as well as a country until this is all blown over worldwide. Pretty much. Yep. Now, uh, South Korea, uh, because of its geographic proximity and economic connections to China, they got it hit. They got hit. And of course, it's a country that's much bigger than Singapore, a lot more population. They can, it's much harder to lock down a country like that. But they were so aggressive in doing contact tracing. So they did have community spread, but they had public officials tracking down every single person that was contacted and isolating those people and keeping them in very strict quarantine, bringing them food, providing them services. Um, and then they've really been testing, testing, testing. So, I, you know, there've been numbers like 20,000 tests in a day. Uh, wow. coming out of South Korea because you need to repeatedly test the same patient. You can't just mm -hmm. do one test, wait for the results uh, for, you know, weeks, um, which is what's happening in the United States. And then expect, you know, oh, it's a positive test. Um, you know, they're very diligently testing patients over and over again, doing very strict contact tracing. So, um, Contact clusters are uh, an important way that the disease spreads. Uh, a lot of households will get it. Certain workplaces will get it if they're around a particular individual. So 
doing very strict contact tracing and putting all those people in quarantine, whether or not they have symptoms, and then repeatedly testing them is the way to flatten the curve. Hmm. And ultimately, the flattening of the curve is in hopes of keeping the hospitals uh, able to deal with the capacity of the inevitable uptick of sick people. Exactly. And it also prevents other people from getting sick. So even if you're, you know, mild to moderate symptoms, if you can prevent that, you're going to be, you know, that's a lot healthier population. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just buy time for everybody else until we can get a, a vaccine. So have any of these steps been taken in the United States, like even like a little bit? Uh, Other than well, I, we well no go, in go California ahead. and New York, California and New York, they had the shutdown, which is an important component. Uh, but that's like kind of a measure of last resort when you don't have the appropriate testing capacity, and you don't have the capacity to do contact tracing. So, um, I mean, if everybody locked down. And nobody went anywhere, then, yeah, we could snuff the virus out uh, relatively quickly, probably in four to six weeks. But um, and, and it, when it's spread out throughout the country this size, it's so hard to really lock everybody down um, because you're pretty much dependent on people who have tested negative providing all those essential services which is just not feasible for a country of this size. So uh, lockdowns can work, but they're not going to be as effective unless they're paired with contact tracing and a strict testing regime. Hmm. And have you discovered any, like a reason why we haven't had the, 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 the testing capability of other countries? Um, that, I, no, I haven't. And I haven't even been focused on that. It's been just trying to predict how, you know, my main goal has been just predicting hospital utilization. Mm -hmm. So how many beds is the, how many beds are, is the uh, hospital network that I work for going to need in addition to the ones we have? Um, what kind of staffing would we need? Uh, that, those sorts of questions. Oh, gotcha. Now, just for my own edification, John, what kind of lockdown measures are you and your household taking right now during these times? Uh, well, one thing that I think is really important is to uh, just remember that you need to take care of yourself. So getting a good night's sleep is really important. Uh, eating well is really important. Uh, and then just remembering that the main trans, the way that this virus is mainly transmitted is through contact. So mm -hmm. it's less about aerosols kind of floating around in the air, although that is one way that it also gets transferred. It's mostly about contact. So mm -hmm. if you do go out um, to the store, I have a box of gloves that I carry next in my car, mm -hmm. uh, homemade hand sanitizer. Uh, as soon as I'm going into the store, I'll put a fresh pair of gloves on uh, and uh, go do, you know, make whatever purchases I need. When I get out of the store, before I go into my car, but after unloading the things, I 
throw the gloves out. And then when I get home, I wipe things down with a homemade hand sanitizer. And um, before I bring the stuff into the house. That was really enlightening. Thank you for sharing that. I don't know if everyone knows exactly what they should be doing right now. And I think that's part of the the social problem that we're seeing is people want to be doing things, but maybe the direction isn't super clear. So I appreciate you sharing your habits. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, of course, in, in our state, in Minnesota, all the uh, restaurants and bars are shut down. And really, I'm only going out if I absolutely need to. That's great. Yeah, we've experienced a similar thing here in Boise. Our mayor shut down all of our bell, uh, bars and restaurants. And that's really what we've been doing here as well, is just limiting uh, exposure to what is necessary. So grocery store trips. Yeah. And so the, the main, the main, anything you touch that's touched by a lot of other people is going to be your main sources. So door, doorknobs and door handles, um, like credit card machines, uh, like the counters, uh, at the cash register, uh, gas pumps are a big one because, mm there's only a few gas pumps in the gas station and they can be touched by hundreds of people at the time. So if you have hand sanitizer wipes, uh, or gloves really, whenever you're touching, Oh, another good, big one is, um, elevator buttons. Oh yeah. That's an important one too. Mm. Um, any, just anything that has been contacted by, let's say more than a couple dozen people, uh, in the course of a day, you really got to be mindful of those surfaces. Those are going to be the main hotspots. So with your statistical projections, what are you working with in your hospital network right now to prepare for? Is that even anything that you figured out yet? Or is that part of the reason for all the alarm? I mean, it's still, we're still working through a couple of like really high level models. Um, and, uh, it's still pretty early on. We're, we're working on a ton of assumptions and um, it's not the forecasts have a huge standard uh, deviation. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what we're looking at right now, uh, I would say in Wisconsin and Chicago and the cities, we're probably if we go into complete social distancing, like if we keep shut down, no schools and people are actually social distancing and being careful and kind of like we have at least 60% of the population in Milwaukee and Chicago following these guidelines. Um, then I would suspect we're looking at for most of our hospital network about three to nine times capacity uh, with, uh, a peak in about three and a half weeks. Wow. Okay. So you would need three times the amount minimum right now is what you're projecting to be able to deal with what's about to hit. Absolute minimum. And that's not including personnel. I would imagine. Right. That's just beds. That's just beds. Okay. Wow. How many cases are you uh, up to in that 
that area already? Uh, Milwaukee has about 300 cases and, uh, you know, these numbers are changing so fast yeah. in our network alone. Uh, let me see. I just pulled up the fresh report and, and, uh, in our situation we have in our network, we have 124, but that our network is only about, uh, 20% of the total market share mm. of our area. So you could easily times that by five. Interesting. But the crazy thing is we've tested a total of 2,350 in our network. 2,350 people so far. Total tests. Okay. And 55% of those are still in progress. So you have no idea. Yeah, we have 55% that are still in progress and we've tested 2,400 cases. I mean, we're, these numbers are... A joke compared to what other countries are doing. What what uh, what's the turnaround time for the test? Uh, it's about a week right now. And that's because of the labs. It's because there's a lack of reagents, is my understanding. But oh, okay. I'm not really I'm not really knowledgeable enough to speak on that okay. in our specific case. But I know that there have been reports, in generally speaking, of labs not having the reagents to conduct the tests. I'm sorry, what's reagents for people, including myself, that have no idea? So, uh, like, once you get the sample, you need to be able to, it's like a Q-tip uh, up your nose. Yeah. And you pop that into, uh, like, a like, a pen-like vial. And then you need to be able to get the, well, it's RNA, but basically DNA, RNA. You need to get the genetic material off of that Q-tip. And then you need to distill that genetic material and run it through a machine to test it. Okay. So getting it from the Q-tip to the machine requires some reagents to extract the genetic material without damaging the genetic material. I see. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. So just curious, um, I know that we're already really early on in these uh, times, but are there any conversations that you can let us know about um, that maybe are brainstorming out of the box ideas for providing these three times more beds? Is, is there any plans in the works to increase the amount of uh, health care we can provide for our citizens? Or can you not touch uh, on that yet? No, I mean, I think, I mean, that's really punching way above my pay grade. But I mean, I'm just trying to show the projection, pr projections about what's needed. And then, you know, mm -hmm. it's up to really it's up to our fearless political leaders to <laughs> take the necessary steps in order to uh, prevent absolute catastrophe. Perfect. Um, yeah, we're all laughing on our end, John. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's maybe the oh, that's like the scariest part of the yeah. whole yeah. So, situation. I mean, what we need to do, I mean, honestly, what we need to do is take over hotels. We need to take over uh, already. Um, there's talks underway to take over public spaces, you know, public university dormitories and things like that. Oh, but yeah. that's not going to be anywhere near enough. We need public dormitories. We need uh, a huge number of hotels. We just need to seize them and take control of them. Mm. And then the other big thing is we need training. 
Yeah. So we need to call the National Guard. We need to get all firefighters and police officers um, training on how to provide basic medical care to coronavirus patients. Yeah. Because we're going to be so incredibly short staffed. Wow. And this is all coming. We were we were chatting earlier about how this is kind of like a tsunami that's approaching. And right now the beach has just become a lot larger. Right. And the wave is, has yet to start impacting us. Do you have, do, do you have any projection as far as when we're going to experience whether or not this is going to be a South Korea situation or an Italy situation in this country? Oh, uh, well, well, yeah, we'll know. And then like, you know, it, the, um, the Canary and the coal mines are, are coastal cities. So, uh, Seattle, uh, New Orleans, LA, San Fran, and New York. And, uh, we'll kind of see how it's going to play out based on what's happening there. Um, the, from what I can see, uh, New York is about 15 days behind Italy and other major sh- cities such as Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, St. Louis, those major cities are about a week behind New York. Okay. And it's important to keep in mind that we it, it's not clear that Italy has peaked yet. No. The growth rate of new cases has gone down. But there's still new cases. Right. And they've been in total lockdown for three weeks now. Ooh. Like total lockdown. Entire economy is, is stopped. They've uh, suspended trading, of course, on their markets. And uh, the growth in cases is still going up. It's still spreading. It's still showing up. Right. So this is, you know, cases spreading among households, mm. um, you know, whatever, whatever limited contact there is between households in during total lockdown. You're not going to completely stop human contact. And in fact, total lockdown increases the contact within households. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that in that paper, <laughs> how the how it's it's kind of a it's a tricky situation when you close down schools and universities because you end up increasing contact in other areas. Obviously, mm-hmm. the children need to be taken care of. And a lot of times they're asymptomatic and still contagious. Exactly. Which exactly. Is, which is wild. This is do you think do you think uh, the 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 length of time between initial infection and showing symptoms is is kind of what's throwing the entire system for a loop? on this with this virus uh well is there yeah, a comparable there's a number of different i think it's not it's not necessarily throwing the system for a loop but it's um it's just giving more time for people to waffle and be indecisive because it's really hard to attack something that you can't see mm-hmm. you can't smell and it doesn't really do anything for anywhere from seven days to 21 days. You know, like it can, the virus can go like the average time span between infection and symptoms is two to five days. 
So you can go five days without being symptoms. You can be contagious, but not have any symptoms for five days. Then after that time, if you start to show symptoms, and we all know that a lot of patients have no symptoms, but if you start to show symptoms, the average time to hospitalization is between six and 12 days. And then once you're hospitalized, it's usually another day or two before you need a ICU. So you're going upwards of 18 to 20 days without needing treat, uh, ICU treatment, ventilators, et cetera. Exactly. Wow. Oh, and then in and the so United States, we only, we only test people when they need to go to the hospital. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, right. So exactly. all, all of a sudden in two weeks, we could have thousands and upon thousands of people wanting to go to the hospital. Right. And so that's what you get with the, uh, yeah, exactly. Cause you got five days where people are spreading it without symptoms and they don't know because they're not positive. And then it can be days beyond that when they actually start experiencing symptoms and they're not sure, like, is it an allergy? Maybe they don't have a fever. Fever is common, but you can have a, a cough and, and, you know, a light fever. So you don't suspect it. And we're not offering tests to those people. And then two weeks later, they could need hospitalization. Wow. That's, so the seeds are most likely already sown mm -hmm. through a huge chunk of this country. Right. Wow. Wow. And this, this has been a very sober conversation, by the way. Yes. I don't think we've ever had a podcast like this on here, but we've never lived through times like this either. I no, mean, for sure. I want everybody to know, though, that I am drinking a beer throughout all of this. So, I mean, who isn't uh. drinking a beer throughout all of this right now? Right. Just to lighten it up. It's Goodness. from 2C. <laughs> 2C Family Brewery. They're still doing deliveries. Uh. They, they'll, they'll deliver it to your house. They'll even spray off the can for you. They yeah. Leave it on your front they porch. They do. They do. Well, and kind of just, I mean, for a second while we're on a tangent of maybe lightheartedness, I mean, can anyone at the table open question, think of any like positive ramifications that this whole pandemic might have on our society as a whole once we come out the other end or are we all just like really depressed? I, the nice thing, John, that article you sent about, uh, I think it was, you sent one about South Korea and Taiwan and, and Singapore, s several articles, and it looks like they all had experiences previously. And so they learned. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I mean, SARS was really serious, and MERS was too, but SARS was really serious. Pretty high death rate, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't nearly as contagious. But that definitely, like, yeah, it, it definitely, I think, helped prepare all these countries for the building the necessary infrastructure. And you don't use the infrastructure very often, but you're really happy it's there when you need it. Yeah, so I guess... At the end of this, we'll all learn how to better manage pandemics in the future because pandemics happen. I mean, well, no, they happen every they what, happen 10 every years? ten years, yeah, yeah, about right, yeah, yeah. And let's hope that this one isn't as let's hope this is on the low end of those projections because <laughs> even then, it's going to be a long time. Let's hope we make it to the pandemic of twenty thirty here. Yes. <laughs> Looking forward yeah. to that curveball. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, the crazy thing is, is that, it, you know, 12 months to create a vaccine 
uh, you know, if even if we contain it, uh, if we don't ready ourselves with really aggressive testing supply kits sending out now, we can flatten the curve. Like, let's say we everybody goes into lockdown, we flatten the curve, but we do peak in like three to four weeks, and then things start getting better. There will be another resurgence if we don't maintain strict testing protocols and uh, you know do contact tracing for the next 12 months until we get a vaccine. Right. That's what happened during the Spanish influenza, right? Yeah. Re- well, re- yeah, it resurged after the summer. Right. And then nobody was caring anymore because they had World War I to worry about. Right. Yeah. Well, my question yeah. is, how do we do um, social or contact tracing? Like, what what would that look like in America? Uh, well, the FBI seems to be pretty good at doing it for, uh, you know, like the Black Panthers and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, ISIS and Osama bin Laden. So, I mean, it's the same thing. You just follow the follow the leads they just don't want to re- uh, reveal that they have that information on us already <laughs> <laughs> that would be an unpopular presentation <laughs> yeah exactly but seriously the, i mean that's the national defense infrastructure uh like for instance israel is using its national defense infrastructure to track this uh same with south korea i, I mean it's a huge national defense issue yeah. We can't protect their people. Like, what? What good is our government anyway? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Good point. Yeah, John for president. Yes, John for president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the holy, the other guy that's completely unqualified, but slightly more rational. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's your slogan. Start working on your campaign statistics. You'll yeah, be a and master you're like, at it. And you're like yeah. 50 years younger, man. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh uh, well, hey, uh, thanks so much, John, for calling in and enlighten, uh, enlightening us. This has been a, a great conversation. Hopefully, the listeners uh, get some ideas on what to expect and some things that they can do for themselves. And then also, if you have any questions, you can always uh, you can always contact us on our website, lowergentrystudios.com, put any questions that you have, and then we'll get them answered on the next podcast. And you know what I was just thinking, you guys? I don't know about you, but I would love a recipe for homemade hand sanitizer. So I'm going to get that from John, and we are going to post it in the comments below so we can all start making our own. Can you send that over, John? Absolutely. Thanks, John. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for calling in. All right. Sounds good, guys. Have a good night. All right. Yeah. You too. We'll talk Stay soon. Stay safe. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.